global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are honored to have with us Mariana Gallegos Garcia Conde, a Mexican attorney with whom our firm has worked together on Mexico-related trade matters. Mariana is a founding partner at Garcia Conde Consultores, where she is responsible for the corporate compliance and consulting practice areas. Prior to starting her own firm, she was a corporate partner at Jimenez y Mendoza Abogados. She has also worked as a litigator for Deloitte and KPMG, and also worked in-house at 3M Mexico, providing legal support to a number of departments. Mariana, welcome to the Global Law and Business Podcast. Hello, Fred. Um, I'm honored and really glad to be here. Mariana, we're very interested in learning more about you. Could we hear a little bit from you about yourself, especially how you got started in the legal profession? You all know I'm a lawyer here in Mexico. I, I just started my, my own law firm and with all the challenges involved in it. And from the personal side, I can tell you I'm a mom of a, of a really active little girl. She's seven years old, Andrea. And, well, I'm a runner as well. Not now because of COVID. 19. Well, I, I tried to keep training. I was supposed to run my first marathon this year, but while well, this has to be postponed for the next year, hopefully, uh, I would like to have this for my 40th birthday present that I'm going to give for myself to, to run my first marathon. Hopefully I can do it. And well, talking about how I decided to enter the legal profession, well, you will be surprised to know that I, I really wanted to be a psychiatrist. Actually, I, I never thought about being a lawyer before. So, but like thinking it better and taking in consideration the, the great, well, a, a, a great tradition, lawyer's tradition in my family. Um, I thought... And I decided that would be a better path for me to follow. And so I did. So, and actually, all my really close friends, they were just like, okay, you're going to quit like in the beginning because you really love psychology and all that sort of stuff. So, but I did and I actually fell in love with law since the first semester of my major. 
So here I am like many, many years afterwards being a lawyer and having my own firm. Another thing I never thought I would do. And I'm very curious, Mariana, what have you learned about yourself in that process? I, I spent a little bit of time on my own, starting my own law firm in a new area. And uh, I learned a lot about myself and about uh, the way I do business. Uh, it, it's quite a different thing to go from working for someone else to working for yourself. I'd love to hear any insights that you've had uh, about yourself or about the practice of laws you've been learning uh, on your own after after being employed at, at some rather large companies? That's a great question. Well, I have learned so much. Actually, as I told you, like I started being an independent lawyer like five years and a half ago, six years at Jimenez and Mendoza. And it has been quite a journey for me. It's you have to start all over as you said it's completely different being an employee on on being a on your own so you have to learn to do everything again because when you work for somebody like you always have their guidance in many aspects like how do you sell your services I, I never really had the need of doing that properly as you do when you are on your own and I had to learn to be really disciplined on self-training if that's the right way of saying it I I had to study a lot on my own as well I had to learn on how to do businesses like selling a service follow up on that then executing the service then another huge challenge is to learn how to charge your services, like to understand your time is precious and, and, and you have to charge on that in, in a fair way, but, but you have to charge on that and that's really challenging as well. And it hasn't been easy for me, you know, like many people really looks forward for it. Like when you're an employee, many people want to go on their own and they dream about it. It wasn't my case, you know. I I really enjoyed, my last job was at 3M Mexico and I really enjoyed it. I was happy there on, on what I was doing, what I was learning. Like I was really happy. And this just happened, the opportunity to go by myself with this partner I was working with. So... I just jumped into it, but but again, I never thought I would do it. it. It wasn't really my dream. Now, like six years later, when I see all what I have learned, all the challenges I'm still facing, uh, I, I'm positive and I'm truly convinced that it was the best decision I could ever make. I love be, I love doing this with all the challenges involved. Again, it's really difficult. It's really difficult as well, the finance part, like to to deal with that, the the economic part. It's not the same to receive your salary like on monthly basis, and suddenly you have to provide for yourself and you have to be really organized. 
that that was challenging as well. Mariana, that was fascinating, and I can certainly identify with with some of those concerns. Having also uh, had my own business for for some time, you 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 bring up a point that I think is is absolutely um, critical. The, the idea of how you value your time, right, and how you um, learn to 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 value it yourself, right? I mean, especially when you're entering into negotiations with a potential client, and and sometimes one, one thing that I experienced, and I would imagine it's it's true to to a certain degree with with other entrepreneurs. Sometimes you you really want the business uh, for. For a series of reasons, you you really want the work. It, it might seem very interesting. It might involve uh, an experience that that you want to have. It might involve travel to to an exciting place. But it's important to have that discipline and say, well, this is um, ultimately my time that I am that I am selling uh, to 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 a client. And uh, as, as as interesting as as this project might be that you do have to run that that analysis and and determine if if it is really something that is worth worth doing um turning turning in a in a slightly different direction from from my own observations and and I think those of others um we understand that our female colleagues in the legal profession deal with unique challenges challenges that we as men are are either unlikely to encounter or encounter them in in different ways. Uh, for example, issues of of harassment, uh, work life balance issues. Um, and I I'm pretty sure that this is not true, not just true in the U.S. but also in in other countries. So, uh, on that note, uh, could you tell us about? the experience of being a woman in the Mexican legal profession? I can talk about my own experience, but not being numb on the the situation. I know that we as women face like every day in our day to day. But for me, I'm not going to lie. It, it has been easy And I have feel supported. Maybe I have been really lucky because I have worked for companies like 3M Mexico, for example. Uh, this company is really, really women-friendly, mom-friendly. They, they have many women in leadership positions. So that was a place where I felt really comfortable working at. But as I told you as well, I have worked for various law firms and and being by myself as well, it has been difficult sometimes. But the thing here is like, I think we are normalizing some things. Let me explain myself better. I, I have, for example, done some criminal litigation, right? And that environment is really difficult and it's mostly ruled by men so sometimes their attitudes or ways of doing things that may feel may women feel not so comfortable but you learn to deal with that right so what i want to say here is like 
it's not that it doesn't happen, but maybe you kind of get used to it, unfortunately. But going back to my own experience, I'm lucky to have really great women friends, lawyers in really tough positions as, as um, I have been lucky to be as well. And maybe we haven't faced that, for example, this, this salary thing where, where many women talk about earning less than a man for the same job. For being honest, I haven't faced that. But I have faced, for example, in a meeting to be with my latest partner, for example, he was a man, right? So we were in a meeting and maybe the client or some colleague were only referring to him, like not taking into consideration I was in the room. But maybe you just take over a bit and that's gone. I consider I have been really lucky, as I, as I said. There is still many men on this profession. I always say it's a men's world, but I still feel I have the same opportunities that men, that, that men. And the thing here is like the work-life balance is very challenging for women because as I told you, for example, I'm a mom. That's very important for me. So trying to balance that part is really challenging and not because of the cultural background of my country and, and this being a, a, a men's profession or, or mostly held by men. The thing here is like, it's a very demanding profession. Like you have to study a lot. You have to be there a lot. If I'm, if I have my own firm, like I have to be there with clients. I have to talk to them. I have to have meetings. Maybe I have to travel. And that part, like you are all the time facing this, this decision making. Sometimes you have to choose. It's like that. Like you have to choose between being the mom or being the lawyer, the, the professionist. You have your personal life as well. And you have to be there for everyone. So that's challenging as well. But I have to face, and I, ha I can't lie, Mexico is it's a very patriarchal system country where, where you see men in the professional life mostly. But women are, are taking serious actions here. And, and I see a lot of women in very important positions in companies, in law firms, all the time. And I can give you an anecdote. And that actually made me feel really, really good. But, it, but it's, it's the truth. It's how things are. Or maybe that was just that day that happened to me. But I was having breakfast in a restaurant with some clients and some colleagues. We were talking about some, some matter, like something we have to solve. And suddenly I was so involved in this chat that I didn't realize. But when I turned around me in the restaurant, I realized the restaurant was full and there were only men, right? I was the only woman there. Maybe it was just that day, but for, it really hit me, you know? 
it made me feel good, but bad at the same time. I was just like, my God, we're only men here. That really made me feel, how can I say it? Oh, good, again, that, that made me feel good. But I realized it's still a reality. Maybe in the professional area, maybe it's the world is still dominated a bit by men. That was great, Mariana. Thank you for sharing uh, your personal experiences. That always makes us consider how we are treating each other uh, in the legal profession and also also outside. And I have two daughters myself, so I'm I'm very concerned about making sure that they understand and and know a lot of strong, uh, strong, resilient women who are doing great things. So appreciate what you're doing, just from a from a father perspective. If we can turn to the law itself. Uh, we know that you have a, a lot of interest in compliance generally uh, and in the many ways that compliance is important, such as in anti-corruption and labor. Um, you've said that you firmly believe in an approach to compliance that goes beyond checklists. And I'm a big fan of checklists because I'm a transactional lawyer, but I always know that there is more beyond the checklist that comes with the experience and the residual knowledge of of, uh, of the years of experience that you have. Uh, could you tell us a little more about uh, about your expertise and what we can learn from you. Okay. Well, first I have to say, like, I, I understand compliance. It's mostly or, or a very important part of compliance. It's law and other normativity involved and to comply that. And, and I, I don't take that part for granted. Obviously that's the first thing to take in consideration. And I, I really do that when I render my services. You have to do that. We are lawyers, right? So you have to to take that into consideration. But the thing here is like, I truly believe that as being a compliance lawyer, I have this beautiful opportunity to go into the companies, to go with my clients and change culture I truly believe, I'm an optimistic, obviously, because I'm, I'm in this country. I live here in one of the most corrupt countries, for example, in, in the world, according to Transparency International. But, but I do believe in change, and I do believe in, in cultural change. So I think if you really go there, you go deeper more than a checklist like, okay, you have your policy, you are complying this or that law. More than that, I believe in giving an important message on trying to change mindsets inside the companies with my clients, myself, to walk the talk all the time. I think that's the only way to really transform and change some conducts so if you don't really go there deeper on the in the compliance area you would never solve the problem because maybe you just have the checklist the company complies with everything but maybe tomorrow you change the people inside the company and they are going to have the same problems if you take this as your dna and you really understand what, why you're doing what you're doing and what for, we will never have a, a real change in, in a compliant company. That, 
they have to learn. What I want my clients to learn is that being compliant is a competitive advantage. You need to be a company where your clients can, who, who your clients can, can rely on. They really know you're always going to choose to do the right thing. And that's, that's really important for me. It sounds to me like you you have learned what all of us learn in the practice of law is that we end up being uh, psychologists for our clients a lot of times, right? They come to us because uh, they can't talk to anyone else necessarily about what's going on. And I think we're in a unique position as well to to uh, to give them that reasoning that you you said, which is if you are compliant, then your business model is less at risk, right? You are a safer company and you are a better company and it's better all around if you do that. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a great point you raise about being really uh, in a position to try to change the minds and hearts of the people uh, who have hired you to help them solve a legal problem. But there's really, uh, it's really much deeper than that. Yes, exactly. And you know what, if I can say something else, I I really think that that being in compliance, like being a compliant company, can make you grow healthier and for a longer term, right? Like in the long term, you're going to be really strong. And, and this prevention culture, it's so important for the companies to to get in the market and stay there like for many 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 years i i think that's an important part as well and i that's something i always try to to share or or to transmit to my clients it's like okay i know you don't see money right now with doing this because they, they only think sometimes about revenue right but like it doesn't matter if you don't see the money right away, but the thing here is like, I'm going to help you for you to grow healthier, stronger, and and to be a company that it's in the market for a long term with, with a very good a image to your clients. And, and the reputational thing is very, very important. And nowadays, it's becoming more and more relevant. This this is a really important point, and I I, I, I do want to to dwell on this for for a little bit, right? Um, how compliance, rather than looking at it as a as a some as an imposition or or a problem, right? I think it's it's very important to understand the the benefits that can come from 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 being compliant in, in key areas, and one illustration of this is. Uh, a matter that I'm currently handling. It involves uh, a client in in Latin America that is is facing some some very serious compliance issues uh, here in the United States that are essentially de- denying them access to to the U.S. market. And I've had a number of conversations with uh, my co-counsel in 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 the country in question, and this is something that we, we keep coming back to. If this company uh, took compliance uh, more seriously, if they decided to uh, look at it not only as a as a as a as a problem right here right now that they have to to deal with, but if they 
if instead of doing that, they appro- uh, they approach this as a cultural issue, right? As a, as a corporate culture uh, matter, where where they're going to to try to improve across the board to avoid the kind of problems that that they have right now, but also to 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 improve overall. It could have incredible benefits. Um, at the moment, for example, this this particular company. Um, it's a relatively small scale company. It's it's a bit messy. If they were to to start taking compliance uh, a little more seriously, then all of a sudden, for example, they could they could seriously consider bringing in foreign investors and increasing uh, their scale. The owners might be able to step back into into a different role rather than than be involved perhaps in the in the day to day operations, which you know. It's probably something they enjoy, but at the same time, these are people that have put in a lot of work over the years, and it, it would also be nice for them, right, to be able to say, okay, look, we we want to uh, get more economic benefit from from the work we've we've put in. Let's bring in professionals who can help us modernize. Uh, let let's set up the conditions so that we can we can make more uh, from from this uh, in in terms of, of of profits, in terms of of financial uh, results, um, so so I think it's 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 a very very important uh, aspect to to compliance, right? It's also about the the potential that it can bring. On that note, uh, Mariana, I, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the new, let's say the the new version of NAFTA. Uh, we call it USMCA here in the U.S. Uh, TMEC in Mexico and Canadians have a, a third name for it, like Kuzma or something like that. Um, but in any in any case, um, my understanding is that the new agreement has uh, content on on the issue of of compliance. So I was I was hoping you could you could tell us about that. And also, if you want, if uh, it, it would be great to hear your thoughts on the agreement itself. Um, there is some debate on whether this really represents a new era in North American trade relations, or whether it's simply a new um, a new coat of paint over the old uh, over the old uh, agreement, and nothing is really changing. So, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yes, Fred. Well, first about compliance and the USMCA. It's, uh, it's very interesting, and, and I agree with you. As you said, and sorry, I didn't go there. It's like, of course, it's an opportunity for investing, like being compliant. It's, it's an opportunity to invest in because it's all about trust between partners, like between social partners or trade partners. And for me, it's very relevant in this in this uh, free trade agreement that they included this chapter number twenty seven, and it's all about compliance. And I think it's very interesting and very it, it's going to be very useful. Which way? Uh, for example, in Mexico, we already had a a huge progress and, and Mexico worked really hard in what we call the uh, national anti-corruption system. 
But with this, with, with the with the issuance or the signing of this free trade agreement, now we have to pay a lot more attention in compliance, so you can access to the benefits of the of the trade agreement, and not only that, it's a compromise we are acquiring with the uh, with the United States and Canada as well with it with the other two countries involved in the in the trade agreement to to avoid corruption and bribery and a very interesting part here is that well what I really like is in the private sector sector as well it establishes the obligation of the private companies to have this compliance program established so for me like the the this this trade agreement it's a great opportunity for for us as a country to turn our heads to compliance and to make it a very important part of our day to day and what what do i think about this trade agreement in general it's Maybe it's it's just a 2.0 version, but I don't see this as a bad thing. I think it's they they took actions on modernizing the the agreement we had before. Uh, they have added really important things as such as this compliance part, uh, the the whistleblower protection all these anti-bribery stuff, as well as the labor things, uh, the intellectual property, the digital trade. So it has very interesting and modern approaches to, to topics that to nowadays are really, really relevant in, in the three countries and all over the world. So as a Mexican or for this country, this, this trade agreement, it's a great, great opportunity on catching up because let's be honest, maybe on corruption matters like anti-bribery, we're, we're far away from Canada, for example, as well as in labor matters and from the United States. It's like, I'm being honest, we know it's like that. Establishing, for example, in, in the agreement that we have to pay like $16 per hour to our labor it's huge. It's huge. We, we don't have that now, and maybe we don't have the infrastructure now to to do that. But it's a, it's a great way to, of enhancing us to do it. So I see in this trade agreement a modern agreement. Maybe I'm just optimistic, but I I see this as a great opportunity of catching up and to become real peers of our trade partners, such as Canada and, and the United States, being the United States our most important commercial partner, I think this would help to have a, a, a more fair relationship between the three parties. And, and this focus, obviously, yes, as, as a compliance lover, this focus on compliance and anti-corruption and on taking care of our institutions, our government officials, all this regulation 
that has to be involved. It, it's wonderful for me. I think it's, it's a great opportunity. Maybe some people was expecting something completely different from NAFTA, something like another different document. But as we know, negotiation was hard. All this local content thing was a really tough discussion between the United States and, and Canada and us. So I think it's a huge achievement that we have signed it and that it is already in force. So I think it's a great step on our path to evolution, like each one of the countries, because actually, I don't know if you heard it, but yesterday in the United States, they were talking about some new legislation on money laundering that it hasn't been modified in 20 years. So that's amazing. And on my perspective, this is happening because of signing the, the USMCA. And I think it's going to happen something similar that when the FCPA became so relevant for the United States and for all the, the countries that were related like in business with the United States. And my experience when I was in 3M, like we started a huge effort of implementing the FCPA and taking care of these matters. So I think that would happen as well with these issues and, and signing of the, of the teammate. So it's good from any perspective that you see it. So Mariana, for obvious reasons, we in the U.S. tend to look at the Mexican economy through the lens of cross-border activity and maybe some people showing some interest in what's happening with Canada. Uh, but of course, we know that Mexico's economy is much more dynamic than that. Can you tell us a little bit about Mexico's relationship with other trade partners? Are Mexican policymakers showing some of the same concerns about the dependence on China that is being shown in other places like the U.S. and Australia and Japan? Well, yes, of course, it's more dynamic than that. Well, we, we can be blind to the fact that 80% of our exports go to the U.S. and about... 36% of our imports come from the United States. And the other countries are not that relevant on that matter for us. It's just because we are, we, we turn to be neighbors of one of the most powerful countries in the world, like commercially speaking. And, but yes, we, we actually are more than that. Like we have signed the TPP, for example, that it, it's going to be very relevant to, to have those trade partners. And actually, uh, for example, today it was announced a credit for like $1,000 million from China to many countries, including us, uh, to, to buy the vaccines against COVID-19. And as well, we have a great relationship with other countries in, in Latin America. And... And notwithstanding the, the trade relationship with the United States, it's so relevant. We are not that dependent on China and we are not concerned on that. Like our, well, it's high number, like 18.5% of our imports come from China. We, we don't have that much of a concern. And the thing here is more, um, 
a relationship thing with with China and the the reaction that the United States could have on that. Mexico has tried to diversify, unfortunately, unfortunately with with not such a success. It's it's export platform, but as I said, like the the United States, it, it's always been our our most important trade partner. But maybe the the sanitary crisis we are facing now could change this scenario because maybe the the demand of products from the United States would would go would, would descend and this nationalist uh, posture of its current government may take us to a decrease in the in the American consumption and our products. So so maybe we would have to make our supply chain stronger and on this regard. But I think Mexico would have to be really careful of not showing direct support and on the direct cooperation and on trade matters, for example, with China. It would have to be in more discreet and obvious fronts, and so the the health issue, notwithstanding, it has a very important uh, geopolitical direct consequence. We, we, I think, it would be that would be less harm, harmful to cooperate in commercial matters than the the harm the, the health issue we're facing now, it's going to cause us. So I do think, yes, we have more than that, but we can't be blind to the fact that, yes, we have more important partners than than others, but but I think we are, as a country, making huge efforts to to make our, our supply chain stronger, to build a stronger infrastructure so we can we can go wider and we can go and reach another countries, not just our neighbors, for example. Mariana, before we let you go, I'd like to ask you for recommendations for our listeners, uh, whether it's a, a book that you've recently read, a movie that you've seen, Perhaps a, a TV series that you're that you're watching, uh, even even other things that that uh, places you've visited. Although I know that's not something that's happening in, in because of COVID nineteen, but we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear what's uh, catching your attention. Could you could you um, make uh, one or more recommendations for for us? Yes. Well, you know what, I'm a TED Talk lover. And one of my favorites right now are the one that has, there, there are two actually, that have really hit me. The, the first of all, it's not about law. There is this TED Talk of somebody called Brené Brown. This woman really hit me with her TED Talk talking about the power of vulnerability. It's really something. So if you can listen to it, it's great. It's really, really interesting. And useful, I think, even in the professional perspective. It's really, really good. Which other one? Well, I'm I'm going through this book 
called Mindset. It's really interesting and it goes through these these two ways of thinking of a growth mindset perspective or a fixed mindset and how can you work on that? So how do you have to be always learning and getting better in every area of your life? That's a wonderful book as well. I think those two things are really, really interesting. I go through this podcast, of, of business podcast that it saw in Spanish. It's called Cracks Podcast, but it's in Spanish, but it's very, very good. I, I really like it. Well, I could be here for hours because I'm really into human development, but I think for now that would be it. No, thank you. That that's um, already that you've you've given you've given us uh, quite a bit to to take a look at. Save some for for the next time we we have you as a as a guest, uh, Jonathan. What about you? Do you have anything for us? Yes, I've been enjoying uh, the Wall Street Journal's podcast called "The Future of Everything." And uh, this came on my radar a few months ago when they interviewed me to talk about uh, CBD, the, the cannabis market in China, and and how the future of that market might impact what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, as you know, we do a lot of cannabis work at our firm, so that is always an area of interest to me. And and I blogged about that on our Canada Law blog, and so uh, that's how I got on the radar for the Wall Street Journal to to talk to them a little bit about that. Uh, but there are a lot of episodes lately. The episodes have been focusing on um, viruses, bats, you know, coronavirus, the, those things. To, uh, even talking about how polio research could help us find a vaccine for COVID. Uh, and so, um, it really is the very wide ranging. So, um, you know, you may not want to listen every time a new episode comes out, but there are uh, a lot of different areas, uh, a lot of very tech specific areas as well. Too very, very interesting to listen to. Um, Fred, what about you? What do you have for us? So I'd like to recommend a documentary. Um, it's called The Silence of Others in, in English. Not quite sure of the, of the Spanish uh, title. Silence of Others, that's how you would find it on Netflix. You, you can find it there. Um, I, I actually saw it at a movie theater when it first came out. I think it was part of, of a festival of some sort uh, last um, summer. Yeah, almost almost a year ago. And it is the story of victims of the of the Spanish Civil War um, who are family members of, and in some cases, of, of victims who are seeking justice for for their their family members. Um, it's a few different stories that, that are intertwined, but the most impactful of the stories uh, involves a an old woman who who is trying to obtain permission to exhume the the. The, the bodies of her of, of her family members who were who were killed. It's a very dramatic documentary, and I think what struck me after watching it. I mean, I've read a lot about the Spanish Civil War, so I I'm well aware of the the tragedy that that it that it um, represented. Um, but I couldn't help but think a little bit about how it, it's probably easier than we think for for a society to start deteriorating into into a into a situation where where people start hating uh, others within their own communities um and i think if if you look at contemporary spain it's obviously not a not a happy story because 
these things didn't happen that long ago. But I think overall, what you can see is considerable progress in moving away from that violent past. But I think for those of us elsewhere, I think the the lesson it needs to be uh, heated that that it's it's not that difficult uh, for things to to slide into a situation that can 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 really tear apart our, our society. So the silence of others, great great documentary. Mariana, I'd like to once again thank you for for being our guest. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure Jonathan did as well. We look forward to to having you on the podcast again at at some point. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fred and Jonathan. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.